Section twelve of the Martyrdom of Man by Winwood Reed. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter one, War, Part twelve. When Phoenicia died, Carthage inherited its settlements on the coasts of Sicily and Spain and on the adjoining isles. Not only were these islands valuable possessions in themselves, Malta as a cotton plantation, Elba as an iron mine, Majorca and Minorca as a recruiting ground for slingers, they were also useful as naval stations to preserve the monopoly of the western waters. The foreign policy of Carthage was very different from that of the motherland. The Phoenicians had maintained an army of mercenaries, but had used them only to protect their country from the robber kings of Damascus and Jerusalem. They had many ships of war, but had used them only to convoy their round-bellied ships of trade and to keep off the attacks of the Greek and Etruscan pirates. Their settlements were merely fortified factories. They made no attempt to reduce the natives of the land. If their settlements grew into colonies, they let them go. But Carthage founded many colonies, and never lost a single one. Situated among them, and possessing a large fleet, she was able both to punish and protect. She defended them in time of war. She controlled them in time of peace. A policy of concession had not saved the Phoenicians from the Greeks, and now these same Greeks were settling in the West and displaying immense activity. The Carthaginians saw that they must resist or be ruined, and they went to war as a matter of business. They first put down the Etruscan rovers, in which undertaking they were assisted by the events which occurred on the Italian main. They next put a stop to the spread of the Greek power in Africa itself. Halfway between Algeria and Egypt, in the midst of the dividing sea of sand, is a coast oasis formed by a tableland of sufficient height to condense the vapours which float over from the sea, and to chill them into rain. There was a hole in the sky above it, as the natives used to say. To this island tract came a band of Greeks directed thither by the oracle at Delphi, where geography was studied as a part of the system. They established the city and called it Cyrene. The land was remarkably fertile and afforded them three harvests in the course of the year. One was gathered on the coast meadows, which were watered by the streams that flowed down from the hills, a second on the hillsides, a third on the surface of the plateau, which was about two thousand feet above the level of the sea. Cyrenaica produced the Sylphium or Asphetida, which, like the balm of Gilead, was one of the specifics of antiquity, and which is really a medicine of value. It was found in many parts of the world, for instance, in certain districts of Asia Minor, and on the summit of the Hindu Kush. But the Asphetida of Cyrene was the most esteemed. Its juice, when dried, was worth its weight in gold. Its leaves fattened cattle and cured them of all diseases. Some singular pits or chasms existed in the lower part of the Cyrene hills. Their sides were perpendicular walls of rock. It appeared impossible to descend to the bottom of the precipice, and yet, when the traveller peeped over the brink, he saw to his astonishment that the abyss beneath had been sown with herbs and corn. Hence rose the legend of the gardens of the Hesperides. Cyrene was renowned as the second medical school of the Greek world. It produced a noted free thinker who was a companion of Socrates and the founder of a school. 
It was also famous for its barbs, which won more than one prize in their chariot races of the Grecian games. It obtained the honour of more than one Pindaric ode. But owing to internal dissension, it never became great. It was conquered by Persia, it submitted to Alexander, and Carthage speedily checked its growth towards the west by taking the desert which lay between them, and which it then garrisoned with nomad tribes. The Carthaginians hitherto had never paid tribute, and they had never suffered a serious reverse. Alcibiades talked much of invading them when he had done with Sicily, and the young men of his set were at one time always drawing plans of Carthage in the dust of the market-place at Athens. But the Sicilian expedition failed. The affection of the Tyrians preserved them from Cambyses. Alexander opportunely died. Pyrrhus in Sicily began to collect ships to sail across, but he who tried to take up Italy with one hand and Carthage with the other, and who also excited the enmity of the Sicilian Greeks, was not a very dangerous foe. Agathocles of Syracuse invaded Africa, but it was the action of a desperate and defeated man, and bore no result. Sicily was long the battlefield of the Carthaginians, and ultimately proved their ruin. Its western side belonged to them, its eastern side was held by a number of independent Greek cities which were often at war with one another. Of these, Syracuse was the most important. Its ambition was the same as that of Carthage, to conquer the whole island and then to extend its rule over the flourishing Greek towns on the south Italian coast. Hence followed wars generation after generation, till at length the Carthaginians obtained the upper hand. Already they were looking on the island as their own, when a new power stepped upon the scene. The ancient Tuscans, or Etruscans, had a language and certain arts peculiar to themselves, and northern Italy was occupied by Celtic Gauls. But the greater part of the peninsula was inhabited by a people akin to the Greeks, though differing much from them in character, dwelling in city-states, using a form of the Phoenician alphabet, and educating their children in public schools. The Greek cities on the coast diffused a certain amount of culture through the land. A rabble of outlaws and runaway slaves banded together, built a town, fortified it strongly, and offered it as an asylum to all fugitives. To Rome fled the overbeaten slave, the thief with his booty, the murdered with blood-red hands. This city of refuge became a war town, to use an African phrase, its citizens alternately fought and farmed. It became the dread and torment of the neighbourhood. However, it contained no women, and it was hoped that in course of time the generation of robbers would die out. The Romans offered their hands and hearts to the daughters of a neighbouring Sabine city. The Sabines declined, and told them that they had better make their city an asylum for runaway women. The Romans took the Sabine girls by force. A war ensued, but the relationship had been established. The women reconciled their fathers to their husbands, and the tribes were united in the same city. The hospitality which Rome had offered in its early days, in order to sustain its life, became a custom and a policy. The Romans possessed the art of converting their conquered enemies into allies, and this was done by means of concessions which cities of respectable origin would have been too proud to make. Their military career was very different from that of the Persians, who swept over the continent in a few months. The Romans spent three centuries in establishing their rule within a circle of a hundred miles round the city. 
whatever they won by the sword they secured by the plough. After every successful war they demanded a tract of land, and on this they planted a colony of Roman farmers. The municipal governments of the conquered cities were left undisturbed. The Romans aimed to establish, at least in appearance, a federation of states, a united Italy. At the time of the First Punic War this design had nearly been accomplished. Wild tribes of Celtic shepherds still roamed over the rich plains at the foot of the Alps, but the Italian boroughs had acknowledged the supremacy of Rome. The Greek cities on the southern coast had, a few years before, called over Pyrrhus, king of Epirus, a soldier of fortune and the first general of the day. But the legion broke the Macedonian phalanx, and the broadsword vanquished the Macedonian spear. The Greek cities were no longer independent, except in name. Pyrrhus returned to Greece, and prophesied of Sicily, as he left its shores, that it would become the arena of the Punic and the Roman arms. In the last war that was ever waged between the Syracusans and the Carthaginians, the former had employed some mercenary troops belonging to the Mamertines, an Italian tribe. When the war was ended, these soldiers were paid off and began to march home. They passed through the Greek town of Messina on their road, were hospitably received by the citizens, and provided with quarters for the night. In the middle of the night they rose up and massacred the men, married the widows, and settled down as rulers of Messina, each soldier beneath another man's vine and fig tree. A Roman regiment, stationed at Regium, a Greek town on the Italian side of the straits, heard of this exploit, considered it an excellent idea, and did the same. The Romans marched upon Regium, took it by storm, and executed four hundred of the soldiers in the Forum. The king of Syracuse, who held the same position in eastern Italy as did Rome on the peninsula, marched against Messina. The Mamertine bandits became alarmed. One party sent to the Carthaginians for assistance, another party sent to Rome, declaring that they were kinsmen and desired to enter the Italian League. The Roman Senate rejected this request on account of its manifest absurdity. They had just punished their soldiers for imitating the Mamertines. How could they then interfere with the punishment of the Mamertines? But in Rome, the people possessed the sovereign power of making peace or war. There was a scarcity of money at that time. A raid on Sicily would yield plunder, and troops were accordingly ordered to Messina. For the first time, Romans went outside Italy, the vanguard of an army which subdued the world. The Carthaginians were already in Messina. The Romans drove them out, and the war began. The Syracusans were defeated in the first battle, and then went over to the Roman side. It became a war between Asiatics and Europeans. The two great republics were already well acquainted with each other. In the apartment of the Aedileus in the Capitol was preserved a commercial treaty between Carthage and Rome, inscribed on tables of brass in Old Latin. At the time of Polybius it could scarcely be understood for it had been drawn up twenty-eight years before Xerxes invaded Greece. When Pyrrhus invaded Italy, the Carthaginians had taken the Roman side, for the Greeks were their hereditary enemies. There were Carthaginian shops in the streets of Rome, a city, in beauty and splendour far inferior to Carthage, which was called the metropolis of the Western world. The Romans were a people of warriors and small farmers, quaint in their habits and simple in their tastes. 
Some Carthaginian ambassadors were much amused at the odd fashion of their banquets, where the guests sang old ballads in turn while the piper played, and they discovered that there was only one service of plate in Rome, and that each senator borrowed it when he gave a dinner. Yet there were already signs that Rome was inhabited by a giant race. The vast aqueducts had been constructed. The tunnel-like sewers had been hollowed out. The streets were paved with smooth and massive slabs. There were many temples and statues to be seen. Each temple was a monument of a great victory. Each statue was the memorial of a hero who had died for Rome. The Carthaginian army was composed entirely of mercenary troops. Africa, Spain and Gaul were their recruiting grounds, an inexhaustible treasury of warriors as long as the money lasted, which they received as pay. The Berbers were a splendid Cossack cavalry. They rode without saddle or bridle, a weapon in each hand. On foot they were merely a horde of savages with elephant-hide shields, long spears and bearskins floating from their shoulders. The troops of Spain were the best infantry that the Carthaginians possessed. They wore a white uniform with purple facings. They fought with pointed swords. The Gauls were brave troops, but were badly armed. They were naked to the waist. Their cutlasses were made of soft iron and had to be straightened after every blow. The Balearic Islands supplied a regiment of slingers whose balls of hardened clay whizzed through the air like bullets, broke armour and shot men dead. We read much of the Sacred Legion in the Sicilian Wars. It was composed of young nobles who wore dazzling white shields and breastplates which were works of art, who, even in the camp, never drank except from goblets of silver and of gold. But this corps had apparently become extinct, and the Carthaginians only officered their troops, who they looked upon as ammunition, and to whom their orders were delivered through interpreters. The various regiments of the Carthaginian army had, therefore, nothing in common with one another, or with those by whom they were led. They rushed to battle in confusion, with sounds discordant as their various tribes, and with no higher feeling than the hope of plunder, or the excitement which the act of fighting arouses in the brave soldier. In Rome, the army was the nation. No citizen could take office unless he had served in ten campaigns. All spoke the same language, all were inspired by the same ambition. The officers were often small farmers like the men, but this civil equality produced no ill effects. The discipline was most severe. It was a maxim that the soldier should fear his officer more than he feared his foe. The drill was unremitting. When they were in winter quarters, they erected sheds in which the soldiers fenced with swords cased in leather with buttons at the point and hurled javelins also buttoned at one another. These foils were double the weight of the weapons that were actually used. When the day's march was over, they took pickaxe and spade, and built their camp like a town with a twelve-foot stockade around it, and a ditch twelve feet deep and twelve feet broad. When the red mantle was hung before the general's tent, each soldier said to himself, Perhaps today I may win the golden crown. Laughing and jesting, they rubbed their limbs with oil, and took out of their cases the bright helmets, and the polished shields which they used only on the battle day. As they stood ready to advance upon the foe, the general would address them in a vigorous speech. He would tell them that the greatest honour which could befall a Roman was to die for his country on the field, and that glorious was the sorrow, enviable the woe of the matron who gave a husband or a son to Rome. 
Then the trumpets pealed, and the soldiers charged, first firing a volley of javelins, and then coming to close quarters with a solid steel. The chief fault of the Roman military system at that time was in the arrangement of the chief command. There were two commanders-in-chief, possessing equal powers, and it sometimes happened that they were both present on the same spot, that they commanded on alternate days, and that their tactics differed. They were appointed only for the year, and when the term drew near its end, a consul would often fight a battle at a disadvantage, or negotiate a premature peace, that he might prevent his successor from reaping the fruits of his twelve months' toil. The Carthaginian generals had thereby an advantage, but they also were liable to be recalled, when too successful, by the jealous and distrustful government at home. The wealth of Carthage was much greater than that of Rome, but her method of making war was more costly, and a great deal of money was stolen and wasted by the men in power. In Carthage the highest officers of state were openly bought from a greedy and dangerous populace, just as in Pompey's time tables were set out in the streets of Rome at which candidates for office paid the people for their votes. But at this time bribery was a capital offence at Rome. It was a happy period in Roman history, the interlude between two aristocracies. There had been a time when a system of hereditary castes prevailed, when the plebeians were excluded from all share in the public lands and the higher offices of state, when they were often chained in the dungeons of the nobles and marked with scars upon their backs, when Romans drew swords on Romans and the tents of the people whitened the sacred hill. But the Licinian laws were carried, the orders were reconciled, plebeian consuls were elected, and two centuries of prosperity, harmony, and victory prepared Rome for the prodigious contest in which she was now engaged. To her subject people, Carthage acted as a tyrant. She had even deprived the old Phoenician cities of their liberty of trade. She would not allow them to build walls for fear they should rebel, loaded them with heavy burdens grievous to be borne, treated the colonial provinces as conquered lands, and sent decayed nobles as governors to wring out of the people all they could. If the enemies of Carthage invaded Africa, they would meet with no resistance except from Carthage herself, and they would be joined by thousands of Berbers who longed to be revenged on their oppressors. But if the enemies of Rome invaded Italy, they would find everywhere walled cities ready to defend their liberties, and having liberties to defend. No tribute was taken by Rome from her allies except that of military service, which service was rewarded with a share of the harvest that the war brought in. The Carthaginians were at a greater distance from the seat of war than the Romans, who had only to sail across a narrow strait. However, this was counterbalanced by the superiority of the Punic fleet. At that time, the Carthaginians were completely masters of the sea. They boasted that no man could wash his hands in the salt water without their permission. The Romans had not a single decked vessel, and in order to transport their troops across the straits, they were obliged to borrow triremes from the Italian Greeks. But their marvellous resolution and the absolute necessities of the case overmastered their deficiencies and their singular dislike of the sea. The wreck of a Carthaginian man-of-war served them as a model. They ranged benches along the beach and drilled sailors who had just come from the plough's tail to the service of the oar. The vessels were rudely built and the men clumsy at their work. And when the hostile fleets first met, the Carthaginians burst into loud guffaws. 
without taking order of battle they flew down upon the romans the admiral leading the van in a seven-decker that had belonged to pyrrhus on they went each ship in a bed of creamy foam flags flying trumpets blowing and the negroes singing and clanking their chains as they laboured at the oar but presently they perceived some odd-looking machines on the forecastles of the roman ships they had never seen such things before and this made them hesitate a little but when they saw in what a lubberly fashion the ships were worked their confidence returned and they dashed in among the roman vessels which they tried to rip up with their aquiline prows as soon as they came to close quarters the machines fell down upon them with a crash tore open their decks and grappled them tightly in their iron jaws forming at the same time a gangway over which the roman soldiers poured the sea fight was made a land fight and only a few ships with beaks all bent and broken succeeded in making their escape they entered the harbour of carthage with their bows covered with skins the signal of defeat however by means of skilful manoeuvring the invention of duilius was made of no avail and the carthaginians for many years remained the masters of the sea twice the roman fleet was entirely destroyed and their treasury was now exhausted but the undaunted people fitted out a fleet by private subscription and so rapidly was this done that the trees as florus said were transformed into ships two hundred five-deckers were ready before the enemy knew that they had begun to build and so the carthaginian fleet was one day surprised by the romans in no fighting condition for the vessels were laden to the gunwales with corn and only soldiers were on board the whole fleet was taken or sunk and the war was at an end yet when all was added up it was found that the romans had lost two hundred ships more than the carthaginians but rome even without large ships could always reinforce sicily while the carthaginians without a full fleet were completely cut off from the seat of war and they were unable to rebuild in the manner of the romans the war in sicily had been a drawn game hamilcar barca although unconquered received orders to negotiate for peace the Romans demanded a large indemnity to pay for the expenses of the war, and took the Sicilian settlements which Carthage had held for four hundred years. Peace was made, and the mercenary troops were sent back to Carthage. Their pay was in arrears, and there was no money left. Matters were so badly managed that the soldiers were allowed to retain their arms. They burst into mutiny, ravaged the country, and besieged the capital. The veterans of Hamilcar could only be conquered by Hamilcar himself. He saved Carthage, but the struggle was severe. Venerable senators, ladies of gentle birth, innocent children had fallen into the hands of the brutal mutineers, and had been crucified, torn to pieces, tortured to death in a hundred ways. During those awful orgies of Spendius and Matho, the Roman war had almost been forgotten. The disasters over which men had mourned became by comparison happiness and peace the destruction of the fleet was viewed as a slight calamity when death was howling at the city gates at last hamilcar triumphed and the rebels were cast to the elephants who kneaded their bodies with their feet and gored them with their tusks and carthage exhausted faint from loss of blood attempted to repose but all was not yet over the troops that were stationed in Sardinia rebelled, and Hamilcar prepared to sail with armaments against them. 
End of section 12